Like I said before, welcome to, to Easter service with us here at Celebration International Church. It's a, pre- a ple- pleasure and a privilege of mine to have you with us. And um, as we jump into your word, I want you to grab your Bibles. And uh, we've read the story of the resurrection in the book of Matthew. And there's several accounts in the Gospels. But I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 26. And park your Bibles there. For I want to approach this from a different angle this morning. As you're turning, I wonder, how committed are you? Can you turn to your neighbor and ask him, how committed are you? Would you go hungry for a cause? Maybe would you, would you spend a stint in prison for a purpose? Would you even give your life if need be? How committed are you? There's a story that goes that Alexander the Great, when he was going through his conquests and taking over the known world, he came to a fortified city, a walled city where all of the inhabitants and the king stood securely, confidently behind those walls. And at the gates, Alexander demanded, surrender now. To which the king laughed and he said, why should we surrender to you and your small little company of soldiers? So Alexander offered him a demonstration. He lined up his men and he said, start marching. And in a single file, Alexander marched them straight to a sheer cliff and to the king's silent awe, to his shock and horror, he watched as man after man plummeted off that cliff towards their death. After 10 or so guys had fallen off that cliff, Alexander said, stop. Without hesitation, whether the king wanted to or not, all the king's people and then the king himself quickly said, we surrender. For if your soldiers are willing to follow your orders even to the death, to give their lives for you, then there's nothing that our fortified walls will be able to do to keep you back. We give in. Now, I, I, I read that story, and I'm like, wow. Talk about commitment. Am I willing to give my meal in order to meet a cause? Would I spend some time in prison in order to perpetuate a cause? Would I give my very life? That was commitment. And if Saul of Tarsus was alive during the times of Alexander... I feel that his commitment level would have been right at home among Alexander's men. For Saul of Tarsus was a man who commitment ran through his veins. It surged through him. Whatever the cost, Saul was ready to pay it. Whatever the obstacle, he was ready to meet it. He was a man who would do anything and everything to defend his cause, to perpetuate his faith in order to defend his nation and all of the traditions. Saul was a man ready to commit, 
regardless of who undermined him. Zealously, he pursued those who were followers of the way. This little sect that had burst out on the scene in the cities of Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. These men and women who dedicated themselves to the way, following after a certain teacher. In Paul's eyes, in Saul's eyes, this man went forward seeing these people as people who needed to be eliminated at whatever cost. With the contingency of soldiers, he would pursue them. Passionately, he discovered their names. Uh, with earnest, he went and found them in their homes, and he would burst in and, with pleasure, bind up every man and woman who were given credence, given their name, perpetuating and saying the name of this rabbi and sharing his teachings. He would drag them off in chains, bound for prison. Many times he had them whipped, the 39 lashes, so much so that these men and their backs, their women, these backs were ripped to shreds. He would give the command. And sometimes this man saw with commitment in his eyes, commitment in motivating him forward, this man would give the, the approval that those who followed after the way would be put to death. While some escaped his pursuit, he gave chase, and he would find them in cities foreign and near. This man was a man committed, committed, committed. This morning, I want you to take a look at this man, because this is a man who in his pursuits following after his desire to preserve the Jewish heritage, to preserve everything that he had been taught, to stamp out anything that would undermine devotion and worship to his God. In one of these pursuits, that man Saul was met with an unforgettable experience, and that experience transformed his life. And if you're not familiar with the story, what was that experience. Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles and take a look here in Acts chapter 26, and let's hear it from him, the very words of this man, a man who committed to pursuing, is here in Acts 26, committed to defending, a man who is right here in this moment, as you open up to Acts 26, he has been in prison for two years, waiting for the opportunity to defend his king. He was waiting for the opportunity to share his version of the accounts. Two years in prison, waiting for the moment to defend himself before king. Are you in Acts chapter 26? Amen. Let's look at verse 13. At midday, this is Paul, Saul speaking. At midday, O king, along the road, that Damascus road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, knocked off their horses, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Can you imagine the scene? A man so committed to pursuing all those who would undermine his God. And now on his way to carry out that mission full of vengeance and, and, and passion. He's knocked off his horse to hear the very words of God say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 15, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Father, I thank you for your word, that although you were put in a grave, you did not remain in the grave, but you came back to life. You were raised among the dead that you may proclaim the life-transforming message of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for your power and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That encounter on that Damascus road that Paul here speaks before King Agrippa, that he recounts here and in two other cases in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9 being the first time, the encounter, the moment, that very encounter, it altered the trajectory of Saul's life to the point that we don't remember him today as Saul, the persecutor, but we remember him as Paul, the apostle, the promoter of the gospel. We remember him as one of the men who wrote the majority of the New Testament. We remember this man not as the one who brought death to those who love Jesus, but the one whose words brings life as he points us to the Messiah. This man was so marked by that encounter. That afternoon, it marked his life that he surrendered it all to Jesus. And in his writings, he would go on to say one day that if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then Christianity and the Christian faith is worthless. It's a worthless waste of time and you're better suited becoming a seeker of pleasure. Go read Corinthians chapter 15 and onwards. If Jesus is not risen, then he is only a dead Jewish teacher who is good to nobody. He is no Messiah. He is no Savior. He is no Redeemer. He would only be a mere man and not the Savior of man if he were not risen. But somebody today, can you give God a praise that he is risen? He is risen and there is evidence upon evidence by which we can stake our faith on that claim. And I'm here this morning to share with you from the perspective of this man, Saul of Tarsus, a man who became Paul the Apostle. Just a few evidences to that incredible claim and reality that Jesus Christ is alive. So I want to leave you with these evidences. And the whole goal and purpose of this morning is I desire, I yearn for, I hope that each and every one of us here this morning whether we've known the Lord or have encountered church and we've been in a service such as this, if this is our first Easter service or the service that we can't even count the number because we've heard this message again and again, my hope is because of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus that you should respond with trust and surrender to his claims.
That is my hope this morning. There is solid evidence for the resurrection of Christ. And I want to share four of them with you this morning from Paul's perspective. How would this man, Saul of Tarsus, how would he have grappled with this? How did this man go from that experience on that Damascus road and reconcile all that he knew and all that he lived and and how life had been for him prior? How did this man become who he has now become? Well, the first piece of evidence that I want us to consider from Paul's perspective is that prophecy shows him risen. Prophecy shows Jesus risen. The Jewish scriptures prophesied again and again throughout all the Old Testament that the Messiah would be killed, but that he would be raised from the dead. Consider how Saul would have studied these prophecies and grappled with these prophecies. If you look in chapter 26 of the book of Acts, he goes on to talk about his pedigree. In verse 4, he says, The Jews all know the way that I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify if they're willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Saul was a man who was versed in the scriptures. He knew the Torah. He knew the Old Testament prophets. He read them. He memorized the scriptures. He understood them. He would meditate upon them day and night as King David said was was his pleasure. Day and night I meditate on your word. Saul was a man not ignorant of the word. But he would have meditated. Not only that, Saul is said to have studied under one of the best teachers of the day. The rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Like his many teachers, Saul would have wrestled with these scriptures and seen these scriptures and looked for their fulfillment. And he would have seen them again and again. And unfortunately though, like his many teachers, I feel like Saul was fixated too much on a political Messiah, that the thought of a suffering Messiah was way too heinous for him to comprehend. Like many who searched the scriptures and saw that it was clear as day there again and again, they just could not accept the fact that this Messiah that was to come would be one that would come through suffering. For instance, let's consider a passage that no doubt was very near and dear to the apostle Paul, or at this point in time, Saul of Tarsus. If you look at Isaiah chapter 53, for instance, look at the beauty of these words, but yet the scandal that's within them. How could this be the Messiah? Isaiah wrote this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Laid upon who? Him, the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was he any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for transgressions. The death of the Messiah. Something that Paul must have mulled over again and again in his mind. It's so clearly seen here. It's so clearly seen in the other prophets. It's seen in the Psalms. And obviously this idea of a suffering Messiah, it has to come to pass. Because if it does not, how else would he be raised from the dead? How else would he ever see the result of the anguish of his soul and be satisfied? There had to be a suffering if satisfaction was to come. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, which if we stop and consider, it was during a time of a feast and every devout Jew had to be there in, in the appointed times for the several feasts that would happen in Jerusalem. They would come from far and wide to be there to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate so many of the festivals. And Paul, undoubtedly, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, was there on that day. Stop and consider Paul as he's mulling over the Old Testament prophets. As he sits there and probably is within earshot of even Peter on the day of Pentecost, who cries out and preaches the good news of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and says on that day, quoting from Psalm 16, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow the Holy One to see corruption. Peter insisted that David was speaking of the Messiah, of his descendant. The one who would come as a descendant of David, the seed of Abraham. The Messiah would come and undergo no corruption and no decay. Peter claimed that Jesus was in fact this man. That Jesus was in fact this man. And that the other apostles would witness to the fact that God had raised him from the dead. He is the one that the scriptures spoke of. And Saul, I can imagine him on that day. Hearing the words of Peter. And saying hogwash. Baloney. This uneducated Galilean has no idea what he's talking about. This uneducated, how is he connecting the dots in this way? No, my Messiah will come in riding strong, pushing out Rome. He will be victorious. Yet Saul couldn't comprehend it then. The simple message of the gospel that Christ 
had to die for our sins, that he would be buried, but then that he would raise himself up again on the third day. What he could not understand that day, he fondly embraced later on in his life. In fact, he would come to see the simple message of the gospel, that all of it, according to 1 Corinthians 15, all of it was according to scriptures. And he would testify to both those small and great as he stood in Acts chapter 26 before King Agrippa, his courtesans, and all the people that gathered to see this spectacle of this man Paul being tried. He says, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, Acts 26, 22 through 23. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, became the evidence for him. That his death and resurrection, which was foretold hundreds of years before his life, and death, all of it came to make an impressive corpus of evidence for Saul, the persecutor. But it's not the only evidence that this man had to grapple with. See, Paul had to deal with something that was very true. He was a logical man. And here is the other piece that stands in stark contrast to everything he was told. That an empty tomb shows that Jesus is risen. There was this matter of an empty tomb that he kept hearing about and undoubtedly must have become a splinter in his brain. When Peter and the others had been proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead, Saul and his cronies could not reconcile that reality. And in fact, they couldn't do something worse, something better. They couldn't produce a body. See, if you go back to the book of Matthew, In his gospel account, it tells us that instead the Pharisees, instead of squashing the issue, they argued. They argued again and again, and this is what it says, verse 11. Instead, they argued that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body from the tomb while the Roman guards were asleep. They bribed the guards, they paid them off, and they said, go and perpetuate this story. I wonder how long Saul allowed that line of reasoning to satisfy the questions bubbling up in his heart. How long before he spotted the holes in that logic? For think with me about this. If the body had been stolen, then that implies a whole bunch of things. For one, think about this. Guards had been posted. A Roman seal had been put upon that tomb. How is it that when precautions have been taken against grave robbery, that these men were able to come in and rob a grave. How could it be that even, okay, let's say they were bold enough to do so, how could depressed, confused followers of Christ, who in that moment were shaken in their boots, who were totally overcome with the fact that their Messiah, that the one that they loved and were with for three years is no longer around, these guys were not riding high, they were down in the dumps. How would such men say, let's do something so bold as to go rob a tomb that's surrounded by guards? Not only that, sleeping soldiers, are you kidding me? For if a soldier was caught sleeping at his post, his sentence was death. 
So how is it that these men would have fallen asleep? No, it makes no sense. Maybe Paul is connecting the dots and he's saying, how is it that I'm buying into this line? This does not make sense. Then there's the fact that there was a stone in front of that tomb, a heavy stone that even if the guards were sound asleep, it would have taken a lot of noise, a lot of commotion, a lot of work by these dejected followers of Jesus that it would have stirred these guards and they would have woken up. If the disciples somehow, perhaps through bribery, removed the body, they would later not have gone around preaching the resurrection even to the point of their deaths. It just did not make sense. No, this tomb is empty. What am I going to do about this tomb? I wonder if Saul lost nights of sleep over this question. I wonder as he contemplated the scriptures and he saw the suffering Messiah, how he needed to lay down his life, but that he would pick it up again. I wonder as he contemplated the reality that people are saying a man who was dead. The very reason he's in court and King Agrippa can't understand him and Festus don't understand him is because of the fact that he's claiming about a certain Jesus whom now he claims to be alive. How is this settled in his mind? There's the evidence of scriptures being fulfilled. There's the evidence of an empty tomb. But there's also on that day, I wonder if Paul Paul reconciled the evidence of changed lives. How did he reconcile that? If Jesus' body had been stolen, regardless of by whom, the Pharisees, the followers, the soldiers, just some vandals, who knows? then there's no way to explain the dramatic changes in the lives of men who used to be bound, who used to be afraid, who used to be timid in the face of opposition, and now these men are being transformed. How does this make sense? None of these men were expecting a resurrection, and yet now they are moving with such great power and authority. They all doubted the earliest reports. All of them ran. They ran to the tomb. The women didn't understand. The, the disciples didn't question. They questioned it. Thomas was saying, I don't believe this. All of them wondered, how is this possible? And yet these men became bold witnesses that if you read the book of Acts, you find them doing exploits. I wonder how many disciples Saul personally saw refusing to change their tune even as he bound them in chains. I wonder how many of those faces popped up in his mind as he lay his head on the pillow. He would see them being flogged and beaten, and yet they don't change their tune. I wonder how it bothered him as he contemplated the image of a face he would never forget. That man, Stephen, from Acts chapter 6 whom the Bible tells us Saul was there, giving approval, holding their coats. See, this man Stephen, who was not even counted to be one of the 12 disciples, but yet this man spoke such incredible teachings and with such incredible authority that as he was speaking before the Pharisees, it says that they contemplated his face as if it was the face of an angel. 
It came to a point as Stephen is preaching in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen goes and he says this, this man who wasn't a disciple, who didn't walk with Jesus the three years that he was around doing his ministry, this man Stephen looks up at all of the Pharisees and all of the religious teachers and he says this, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. As your fathers did, so you do as well. They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. How dare he say such a thing? This man who didn't walk with Jesus, who wasn't emboldened by Jesus, yet he's encountered something, he knows something, that now he stands here to give us such a sharp rebuke. To which that was way too much. And the Pharisees couldn't hold that. They quickly picked up, Stephen dragged them outside, picked up their stones, and said, hey, Saul, hold our coats. Saul gave approval as they started throwing the stones one by one. But as Stephen is in that moment, Saul with coats in his hands, I wonder if that scene replayed in his mind again and again. For just before the elders rushed upon Stephen... His face shined like that of an angel. And this is what Stephen says in that moment, Acts 7, 56. Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. As he sees this image before him, that image is shown on his face and Saul is looking right at him and he sees this man. And then Stephen says something incredible. As the stones are hitting his body and death is surely coming, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this against them. I wonder if those words reverberated in his ears. How could it be that a man upon his death that I was complicit in and I gave my approval, I was present for, I witnessed. How could that man endure to that point? Why would he say such things? How could he say such things? It's almost as if Stephen was speaking, as if he was looking directly in the face of this risen Jesus. How is it that he could say that? Man, If that isn't a splinter for the brain, I don't know what is. But let's consider the fourth piece of evidence. When all the anecdotes go from being merely stories to becoming personal experiences. Acts chapter 9, he tells it for the first time. We find it there in the scriptures. Consider when everything became personal. The Bible tells us that the eyewitness testimonies show that he is risen. On the day as Saul was going to Damascus to fulfill his obligations and duties to persecute and pursue those who were of the way, to lock up believers and put prisoners in their cells who say that they follow Jesus, Saul is riding high on his mission on his high horse, and he gets knocked down by a light that shines upon him. Stricken blind, he falls to his knees. 
And he hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A voice from heaven was none other than God himself. I am Jesus Christ whom you are persecuting. What had once become just a story from other sources has now become an experience for this man. This Jesus whom people have claimed is alive is now standing before him and he says, I am right here. Alive and well. I'm not in that tomb. I've come out. The prophecy spoke about me. The people, others have seen me. And now Saul, look upon me with your very eyes. I am here. A personal experience for Saul that was not just his own. But he spoke to Peter. He spoke to James. He connected with the uh, disciples and followers of Jesus. And he speaks about how they, on many occasions, had encountered the risen Lord by a sea at Tiberias on an Emmaus road. He had seen um, people who connected and saw the risen Lord, 500 of them at one time, as he speaks about it in Corinthians. These eyewitness accounts were way too varied and way too diverse, and too many different details for one person to make up and for him to not factor in. Friend, a person with an experience shall never be at the mercy of a person with an argument. Saul had now had an experience. His life had changed. You add it all up and you conclude that these eyewitness testimonies to Peter, to John, to the disciples, to the women at the tomb, to those who are locked up in a room praying and fearful of the Pharisees, when Jesus bursts into that room and he says, peace be still, do not be afraid, it is I, touch and see. When he showed up again and again, friends, all of it becomes evidence that he is no longer in a tomb, but he's alive. If we had time, I'd mention to you all the different evidences in so many different ways through science, through archaeology, through all these different means. But I will suffice to say these four are enough for us to make a choice. These four should be sufficient for us. The prophetic scriptures being fulfilled, the empty tomb, the changed lives of men and women, and the eyewitness testimonies. All of it speak to the fact that Jesus Christ would not be contained by a grave that he came back to life, that he rose on the third day, just like he said he would. And because of this evidence, there is one response that you and I need to make. And that is this, you should respond with trust and with surrender. The Easter story is great and it's beautiful. We can do our Easter egg hunts. We can have fun with family. But here is the truth. Every Easter is an opportunity for us to respond with trust and surrender to the resurrected Christ. Jesus made amazing claims while he was on earth. He said some pretty wild things. For instance, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed From death to life. He said, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I could go on quoting scripture after scripture of what God has promised through his Son, Jesus Christ, but here's the point. You should respond with trust to Christ's 
claims. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? It means that you put your trust in him. It means that you anchor your life upon him. You trust his promises to be true. Just as you depend so often on other things, you have to depend upon him. You depend on him and what he did and how he accomplished what he did for you. If you do not trust in him, what are you trusting in? Because the reality is our good deeds and our good name is not sufficient to save us. If we depend on anything else other than the death and the resurrection of Christ, then it will not satisfy the wages of our sin. You have to trust him like you trust the pilot to take you to your destination. You got to trust Jesus like you would trust a lawyer to defend your case. You got to trust Jesus like you trust a surgeon to operate upon you. You got to trust him as you would trust a bridge to hold up the weight as you cross over that deep chasm. You've got to trust him in that fashion and not rely on your own sense and not your own self and not your own intellect, but totally trust him as the only hope for your soul. You should respond to Jesus with surrender. When Jesus appeared to Saul on that Damascus road, Saul said to him, Lord, what shall I do? To which Jesus says, arise, go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I love verse 8 of the book of Acts, chapter 9. Actually, chapter 22 and verse 8. He says, when Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. That day, everything changed for this man, church. Everything changed for this man. That encounter, that act of surrender, it led a sinister persecutor to become a powerful proclaimer of God's word. It led a man who was a warrior in order to squash the kingdom of God. It led him to become a warrior in promoting and perpetuating that kingdom. Even though Jesus could have stricken Saul dead for all that he had done, he only struck him blind and Saul surrendered everything to him. And in three days, when Ananias prayed with him, Saul received back his sight, but he received great revelations of Christ. He would see Lord, the Lord for three years as he spent time understanding the scriptures and seeing all the fulfillment of the prophets. As he would spend time with the Lord and hear the testimonies of other people and observe the life change of other folks, he would truly encounter Jesus more and more and see the evidence of the risen Lord. And this would change this man to become a powerful promoter of the word because I could have met God's wrath, but I found instead his mercy. Church, God wants to meet you with his mercy. Easter is about God showing us his mercy where he says that I have come to reconcile you who have been lost and led astray and I have been numbered with the transgressors so that you could have life. Jesus Christ is alive and well. How could he have responded any other way but responded to the abundant love that he received from Jesus? I, man who persecuted you, now become a man who has been set apart for you. How could it be? I ask you that question, how could it be? Because it is possible for us to walk in a different way. 
It's possible for us to not respond in the way in which Paul responded. In the very chapter 26 of the book of Acts, he is speaking at his trial to Festus, to King Agrippa, to a court of people. He speaks of what God has done for him. And there, in the midst of his testimony, there is other responses that come. As he proclaims the risen Lord and how Jesus is king and alive, those in front of Saul, who have now, has now become Paul, they reject the message. For example, Acts 26 tells us that Festus, the Roman governor, said, Paul, you're crazy. You're cra- you have read so much that it's made you crazy. You're a madman. But really, church, what I stop and I think about that, this man Festus, who had been hearing this thing, who needs to make a decision, who has for a while contemplated, this man is only speaking what is coming top of mind because there is something stirring within his heart. Conviction has grabbed a hold of him, and he does not want to lose face. And so he says, Paul, you're crazy. King Agrippa, on the other hand, tried to use humor in the midst of that testimony. And he says to Paul in verse 28, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Come on, Paul. You're speaking all these things, but you want me to be a Christian? Come on, man. King Agrippa, who Festus invited because King Agrippa is a relative of Herod the Great is a Jewish man who knows the scriptures, who has been studying the word, who has been brought on by Festus as a consultant in order to lend some knowledge and credence to Festus in making his decision so that he does not send Paul to Rome to stand before Caesar without justification. King Agrippa, who knows very well the words that Paul is speaking, He responds with humor because he too does not want to surrender. Embarrassed in front of Festus, he senses the truth, but yet a man with such wealth and such power, a king, he does not want to surrender his life to the reality of Christ. And so he walks away from truth. In my experience, church, Those who do not respond with trust and with surrender to the risen Lord, we're not lacking evidence. We're not lacking evidence to the fact that he is who he said he is. Just study this book and you'll find the fact that it is the most reasonable thing that we could do is surrender our hearts to Jesus. Rather, what we don't want to do is surrender control to his lordship. And that is the beauty of Easter, that Jesus has come and he's risen from the grave to be both Lord and Savior. And we can't have the saving if we won't have the lording. If he will not be Lord of our lives, we can't experience him as the Savior of our lives. What's irrational is us not responding to his abundant love. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. As you contemplate the Apostle Paul, years and years ago, this man had to come and grapple with the message of Easter. 
he had to reconcile it within his heart. And he did so. And I'm grateful for it. For he's given us such a testimony of God's grace and mercy. But he might seem a little far, a little distant, so removed from our lives today that we wonder, can God truly change a life? 